Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 117. Montreal. In our last episode, we covered the rest of the war in 1759, before moving on to 1760. Pitt allowed the war to be fought at Amherst's discretion, and he had decided on a three-pronged assault on Montreal. One down the St. Lawrence from Oswego, one down the Lake Champlain Corridor, and a third up the St. Lawrence from Quebec. Meanwhile, the French commander, Levy, who had taken over from the deceased Montcalm, was plotting the recapture of Quebec. Levy was operating out of Montreal, and had been bolstered by 7,000 refugees able to fight to recapture the city, and Montreal's food supply was sufficient to feed them. However, Levy also needed munitions. He sent word to France in October, and hoped to begin the recapture of Quebec in April if he were properly reinforced in time. He felt quite confident about the year. The British were in an advanced position, far from home, and Montreal was well defended. If they could hold out for the year, the British could be forced out of Quebec and back to New York. On April 20th, Levy left with 7,000 infantry and 12 cannon for Quebec, meeting the British six miles from the city on the 27th. Governor Murray had suffered a tough winter in Quebec, and their garrison had nearly halved to only 4,000 men of effective fighting ability. But his troops were battle-hardened regulars, while most of the French force were provincials. Knowing that his supplies were not in great condition and he may not be able to survive a siege, Murray met the French for battle on the plains of Abraham the next day. Levy had been expecting a siege, not the battle, but decided to take the opportunity. The British were unable to quickly break the French as they had the previous September, and eventually the French started to push the British back. Soon enough, the British were trapped in Quebec, and Levy was putting the city under siege. It was a significant loss for the British, both in terms of men, but also in terms of abandoned artillery. Still, by the time the French had constructed their siege works and opened fire on Quebec in the middle of May, they could only fire one shot for every 20 that the British could fire back. Unbeknown to Levy, however, the battle for Quebec had already been decided to the previous year off the coast of Portugal and in the Bay of Biscay. The battles of Lagos and Quiberon Bay that we discussed last time were vital in securing British control of the Atlantic. The French tried to send reinforcements and supplies to Canada, but they were not able to get past the British. On May 12th, ships were spotted coming up the St. Lawrence, but they had Union Jacks on them, saving the British. They opened fire on the French, who fled the next day. More and more ships followed the first, and by July 13th, Murray was ready to take the offensive. He put together a force of 2,200 from the Quebec garrison, and they began to make their way irresistibly to Montreal. They were then joined by two regiments from Louisbourg in late August, bringing their strength up to 4,000. On September 1st, he arrived at Varennes, 
a settlement which is now a suburb of Montreal, which is on the southern bank of the St. Lawrence, near the northern end of Montreal Island. He began to dig in and set about waiting for Halavand and Amherst. Halavand was to take up the march up the Lake Champlain corridor, but was beset by delays. His provincial troops arrived at Crown Point by June, but then he needed to wait for Amherst to move to Oswego to begin the march down the St. Lawrence. And then there were difficulties with moving supplies for the expedition to Crown Point from Albany. Amherst had his own difficulties, such as low water levels on the Mohawk, but he departed from Oswego on August the 10th, at almost the same time as Haviland made his assault on Fort Il Aunois. Haviland bombarded the fort, and on August the 27th, the French abandoned it, moving to south of Montreal. Haliband pursued, but methodically. Amherst captured Fort Levy at almost the same time in what is now known as the Battle of the Thousand Islands. It was a very spirited resistance by a small French defending force, but they couldn't hold out against the British. Amherst reconstructed the fort, renamed it Fort William Augustus, and started to approach Montreal from the southwest. Resistance melted. Halavand and Amherst both reached Montreal a few days after Murray. Levy still hoped that he could save the situation for the French and tried to get the support of a number of Indian tribes who had not really been involved in the war since 1757, with the help of allied tribes near the St. Lawrence. Instead, the Indians agreed a peace with Amherst. Levy knew the game was up. This really emphasises the value of the Iroquois to the British. Amherst himself completely misunderstood what was happening here. He distrusted the Indians, and while he appreciated on one level that he didn't need to fight the Indians of the St. Lawrence, he viewed them as treacherous. They were betraying their masters at the first chance they got. This was of course nonsense. They were a separate nation and had operated with the French as allies. They felt betrayed by the French trying to take their hostages after Fort William Henry and terminated the relationship. The Iroquois then made the case for alliance with the British. Before long, Montreal was completely surrounded. Inside the city were slightly over 2,000 men who were fighting fit. The militiamen had gone home to protect their families. There were no Indian allies. Supplies were low. Vaudreuil convinced Levy that there was no point to any further resistance. It would do nothing but waste lives. Vaudreuil drew up his terms for surrender. The French soldiers would be granted honours of war and could return to France on parole. French colonists could remain in Canada and would be allowed to practice their faith and own property. They would be allowed to be considered neutrals for the rest of the war. The King of France would continue to appoint the bishops of Canada. Amherst agreed to most of those, but would not allow anything that limited British sovereignty, such as the neutrality or the bishop clauses. There was only one real point of disagreement. Amherst did not want to allow the French to surrender with the honours of war. They could return to France, but they would need to lay down their arms and not continue to fight. 
This would be a revenge for the Fort William Henry massacre. He would not budge. Levy was insulted and demanded that Vaudreuil end the negotiations and let the enlisted men die with honour. Vaudreuil responded that he did not care about French military honour. He wanted to protect lives. He let Levy burn down his standards rather than having to turn them over, but otherwise he accepted the terms. On September 9th, he surrendered Montreal to the British. 152 years after the founding of Quebec City, the Dominion of New France had been brought to an end. The conquest of Canada was complete. There are two overarching themes here. Why the British won and why the French lost. Both themes are intimately connected. The French had established themselves in North America early. Quebec City was founded in 1608. If you look at a map of North America in 1750, the French controlled a vastly bigger area than the British, but it had one key weakness. It struggled to supply itself. The French had two methods for solving this. Option one was to supply New France from across the Atlantic, but the French struggled to match the naval strength of the British. This meant they needed another supply system, close trading relations with the Indian tribes. The relationship with the Indian tribes was crucial to the success of the French in the early years of the war, but the relationship strained and finally broke after Fort William Henry. Suddenly, New France became completely dependent on supplies from across the Atlantic. Pitt's plan was to cut France's colonies off from the metropole, which worked. However, at the time, it was completely missed that France losing the Indian allies was what made the cross-Atlantic trade so important in the first place. The British were perfectly placed to take advantage of this. After years of problematic relations with the Indians, they formed a close working relationship with the Iroquois that opened doors which were previously closed, leading to the near-bloodless capture of Montreal. But, at the time, many failed to understand this. British resources were much greater in North America than those of the French, and they put together a supply network between South Carolina and Quebec. They spent massive amounts of money building this network and supporting it, which needed to come from Westminster, as the colonists lacked liquid capital. These were all important, but would have meant little had the French been able to supply themselves. The Americans put tremendous strain on themselves for several campaigning years to accomplish this, and the French generals were not wrong in thinking that it couldn't continue. If they had been a bit better supplied, they could have perhaps held on to Quebec, forced the British to withdraw exhausted back to New York, and who knows where the war would have gone from there. But it didn't. The British had won. Now, don't panic. While the conflict between the British and French in North America, which we've spent most of the past 20 episodes following, is over, the Seven Years' War isn't. We still need to wrap up events in Europe for Prussia, while Portugal and Spain haven't even entered the war yet. The British will mishandle the Indians, leading to war with the Cherokee and eventually Pontiac's Rebellion, and back in London, Pitt faced disaster. Pitt had controlled Britain for the last few years, 
completely unopposed. But all of a sudden, everything fell apart. On October the 25th, 1760, King George II died. He was succeeded by the 22-year-old George III. But we'll get into all of that next time. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. Thank <laughs> you.